Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 91, Space Shuttle Flight 24, STS-61C, The End of Innocence. Last time, we talked about the second flight of Atlantis, STS-61B. The mission set the program record for fastest orbiter turnaround between missions, launching twice in a remarkable 54 days. We also got to play with a bunch of struts and connectors in the payload bay, building and moving large structures. It was a mission that clearly had its eye on the future. For our next mission, we need to take a quick look at the past, specifically December 8, 1983. That is the date that STS-9 landed at Edwards, and was the last time that we saw Space Shuttle Columbia. Everyone, remember Columbia? Where has that thing been? The short answer is, in the shop. For what, you ask? Well, for one thing, don't forget that a couple of the APUs caught on fire during the final moments of STS-9's landing, causing not insignificant damage to the orbiter. But fixing that didn't take the whole two years. No, this trip to the shop was for upgrades. Because it's been a while since we last saw good old OV-102, you may have forgotten that Columbia was a little different than the rest of the orbiter fleet. Most notably, Columbia's flight deck came equipped with two ejection seats. These seats were there for potential use during the four orbital flight test missions that kicked off the program. The phases of flight where they could be used were fairly limited, but if the crew found themselves in an unrecoverable situation during one of these phases, they could use the seats to make a hasty escape. However, after STS-4, the crews expanded beyond the commander and pilot, and I guess they decided that it would be pretty rude to punch out of a failing spacecraft, leaving those without ejection seats behind. So, from STS-5 onwards, the seats were safe and could not be used. Except, you know, as chairs. But even with the seats inactive, they were still a problem. The seats themselves were gigantic and were slotted onto heavy floor-to-ceiling rails that would guide the seats on their way out through special blow-away panels in the ceiling. That mass could be better used on more experiments and payloads, and that volume could be better used on larger crews and just not being quite as cramped. So the seats had to go. Another significant difference was the lack of a heads-up display. This device, which looked like little clear sheets of glass mysteriously placed between the pilots and the windshield, overlaid critical information right on top of the view outside. Using fancy optics, they even focused the text such that it appeared to be in the far distance, so the crew didn't have to switch back and forth looking between the runway and their current velocity or whatever. This allowed the commander to instantly react to the state of the spacecraft as they brought it in for a landing. The HUD wasn't strictly necessary, but it sure helped a lot, and it would be a welcome addition for future commanders and pilots. Along with these, and numerous other small changes to bring Columbia in line with the rest of the fleet, there was one more change that actually made it a little different. The SILTS pod. We discussed this a bit back on episode 88, STS-51J, since Atlantis was on a classified mission and we had to find other stuff to talk about, but let's just touch on it briefly. SILTS properly known as the Shuttle Infrared Lee-Side Temperature Sensing Experiment, was a special infrared camera that was placed at the tip of Columbia's tail. The reason for doing this was that the shuttle was the only vehicle flying through the atmosphere at hypersonic velocities on a regular basis. So it was an ideal platform for learning more about this unforgiving flight regime. SILTS provided researchers with imagery showing where the back of the orbiter got hot and what those temperatures were. Of special interest was the leading edge of the wing, which, along with the nose of the orbiter, took the most punishment during re-entry. 
The silt's sensors were eventually removed when the experiment had run its course. But what wasn't removed was the bulbous tail tip that had been added to house the experiment. Wind tunnel testing showed that leaving it in place was no problem, so it wasn't worth the hassle, risk, and expense of taking apart Columbia's tail again. The pod would remain in place for the remainder of the vehicle's life, joining the black markings on top of the wings as a distinctive Columbia-only feature. STS-61C has a crew of seven, so let's get into it. Commanding the flight was Hoot Gibson, who we last saw on STS-41B flying as pilot. This is his second of five flights. Joining Hoot up front is yet another name we'll be hearing a lot of on the show, Charlie Bolden. Charles Bolden Jr. was born on August 19, 1946 in Columbia, South Carolina. Hey, how about that? Born in Columbia and flew on Columbia. I'm sure I'm the first person to make that observation. Bolden attended the U.S. Naval Academy, earning a degree in electrical science before joining the Marines and learning how to fly. He flew over a hundred combat missions in Southeast Asia before returning home to become a test pilot and being chosen as an astronaut in 1980. This is Bolden's first of four flights, and we'll later be spending some time with him in his role as the administrator of NASA. Mission Specialist 1 was Pinky Nelson, who we last saw grappling with a tumbling Solar Max mission on STS-41C. This is his second of three flights. Alongside Pinky was Mission Specialist 2, Steve Hawley, who we last saw on Discovery's first flight, STS-41D. This is his second of five flights. Mission Specialist 3 continues our theme of introducing people who we'll be seeing for quite a long time, Franklin Chang Diaz. Franklin Chang Diaz was born on April 5, 1950 in San Jose, Costa Rica. He earned a bachelor's in mechanical engineering from the University of Connecticut and a doctorate in applied plasma physics from MIT before being selected as an astronaut in 1980. Among his various duties as astronaut, he also worked to bring together the science and spaceflight communities, which don't always mesh as well as you might hope. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but after retiring as an astronaut, he would combine his science and spaceflight experience and work on VASIMIR, a plasma-based propulsion system. He will eventually share the record for the most shuttle flights with Jerry Ross, since this is his first of seven missions. Payload Specialist 1 was Bill Nelson, no relation to Pinky. Clarence William Nelson, who went by the nickname version of his middle name, was born on September 29, 1942 in Miami, Florida. He graduated from Yale University and the University of Virginia Law School, passing the bar in Florida in 1968. Ten years later, he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, representing Florida's 9th District. That's right, we've got another politician. This time from the House. I won't spend time re-exploring the question of if flying sitting members of Congress was a good idea. You can see episode 83, STS-51D, where I talk about Jake Garn, if you want to hear my thoughts on that. But I will say that the crew reported that Nelson was eager to learn and knew not to interfere with the main mission. So that's something. This was Nelson's only spaceflight. And last but not least, payload specialist 2, Bob Senker. Robert Senker was born on November 5, 1948 and grew up near Uniontown, Pennsylvania. He earned bachelor's and master's degrees in aerospace engineering from Penn State, as well as a master's in electrical engineering from Rutgers. Busy guy. He eventually found himself working for RCA in a variety of spaceflight support roles, before being chosen by the company to observe the deployment of the RCA ComSat we'll be talking about in a little bit. This is his only flight. 
STS-61C was intended to be the last shuttle launch of 1985, but encountered an almost comical number of delays. There were so many delays that one of my sources, which goes to great lengths to pack a ton of data about each mission onto a single page, was forced to use a second page just to deal with them. Normally these delays would just be an annoying but typical part of the job, but I think they're actually a pretty significant backdrop for the mission we'll be talking about next time. So, at the risk of overdoing it, let's run down all six delays. We'll start out on December 18, 1985, but that was called off pretty early. They hadn't even started propellant loading yet. It sounds like they basically just ran out of time on some RCS crossfeed work in the back of the orbiter, slipping the launch by a day. The next day, on December 19th, they almost pulled it off before scrubbing at T-14 seconds. An electronic component in the right-hand SRB redlined, causing the always prudently cautious onboard computers to call the launch off. The component turned out to be fine, it was just a minor hiccup and some overly sensitive limits, but at T-14 seconds, that's enough. This SRB-related launch delay would also be significant for the next mission. January 6th, 1986 was my favorite one because it's just so ridiculous. As the shuttle sits on the pad, liquid oxygen in the external tank boils off, passing through vents and getting sucked up by the gaseous oxygen vent arm. It's replaced with more liquid oxygen, which flows through a liquid oxygen replenish valve in the ground side equipment. This valve was commanded to close about five minutes before liftoff, and it did. But the sensors that measured this failed, so the computer thought that the valve was still open. Because of this, the computer left a similar valve inside the orbiter open. About three minutes before liftoff, ground controllers stopped the countdown for a few minutes to address the ground side valve. By looking at their other data, they determined that everything was actually fine and restarted the count. Okay, great, except, whoops, nobody noticed that the orbiter's valve was still open. Liquid oxygen flowed out of the external tank, filling the pipe between the ground side valve and the orbiter valve with about 1,500 gallons of liquid oxygen. This brought the temperatures out of the narrow range required by the finicky main engines, forcing another hold. With me so far? Alright, ground controllers figured that this would take a little longer to fix, so they moved the clock back to T-20 minutes and asked the crew to turn off the auxiliary power units to save their limited fuel. This was a mistake, because they forgot that the APUs would have to cool down before they could be turned on again, and the time required to cool down pushed them right out of the launch window constraints for their commsat payload. Scrubbed again. January 7th, the crew does the whole routine again. Breakfast, wave to the press, astrovan, elevator, strap in, the works. No SRB issues, no weird valve issues, everything is great, except the weather. There was iffy weather at both transatlantic abort sites and the Kennedy runway, forcing a scrub at T-9 minutes. Back in the Astrovan, everybody. We'll try again in two days. The fifth attempt on January 9th never even got going, because on the 8th, technicians discovered a 5-inch temperature sensor stuck in a pre-valve for engine number 2. Whoa. This could have been super bad with the best-case scenario being an abnormal engine shutdown. The potential for a full-on main engine explosion was definitely on the table. It was an easy fix, though, 
and the launch was pushed only one more day. Our sixth and final delay was simple enough to explain. It was raining at the Kennedy Space Center, resulting in another two-day slip. In total, STS-61C encountered six scrubs over 25 days. What are we to make of this? I think it's important to not overgeneralize here. Two of the scrubs were due to bad weather, and that's no problem. Weather happens. It's Florida. One was due to additional time being required to finish some maintenance task. I think this one is sort of neutral. It's not great that insufficient time was allotted for this task, but it is good that when that became apparent, the launch was scrubbed, as it should be. Another scrub was due to over-conservative limits on a piece of hardware, and I think that's probably fine too. A scrub is annoying, but this was a harmless hiccup that failed in the direction of extra safety. More problematic are the other two, the temperature sensor and the oxygen valve. The temperature sensor scrub is problematic, just because of how scary the consequences would have been if it hadn't been found lodged in the engine pre-valve. But I think it also demonstrated the value of having both rigorous standards and vigilant inspection. The sensor broke off due to a bad weld, and was found because the inspection teams were good at their jobs. The process anticipated this possibility, and had a stopgap in place. So, I think I have to call this one a neutral delay. Lastly, the human error associated with the oxygen valve incident. This sort of feels similar to the temperature sensor, but instead of a bad weld, it was a software error and human error, and instead of manual inspection catching the issue, it was automated checks. In the end, nothing dangerous was really possible, I don't think. It was just sort of goofy and embarrassing. More concerningly, this kind of human error feels like the result of the increasing launch tempo at this point in the program. But at long last, on its seventh attempt, on January 12, 1986, at 6.55 a.m. Eastern Time, Columbia roared off the pad for its seventh trip into orbit. And I guess OV-102 was eager to throw its crew a curveball after so much time on the ground because right away there was a potential problem with one of the main engines. The space shuttle main engines needed high-pressure helium in order to operate properly. Why helium is needed is too in the weeds to get into now, but suffice it to say that the helium level was always closely monitored. As the ascent proceeded, alarms started to sound due to unusual helium levels. It looked like a serious leak. This particular system fell onto the pilot to troubleshoot, so Charlie Bolden, mere seconds into his first spaceflight, dove into finding the source of the leak. He switched back and forth between the two redundant systems, trying to find the source, while also keeping the main engine up and preventing an early end to the mission. By chance, Commander Hoot Gibson was watching at the exact moment that the helium value on the screen did something weird. It blipped from negative 50 to plus 50 and back. Deciding that it was a squirrely sensor and not a real leak, he told Bolden that he could bring both systems back online and stop trying to find the leak, since there wasn't one. Hoot was right, and after all the delays and an exciting ascent, STS-61C was finally underway, with Columbia placed in a 324-kilometer circular orbit. First on the agenda was the deployment of a commercial commsat, RCA's SATCOM K-1. This was basically a carbon copy of the SATCOM K-2 we saw on the previous flight. 
I'm not entirely sure how K2 flew before K1, but as we've learned, payload manifest reschedulings are pretty common, so it's not super surprising. One thing I neglected to mention about this line of spacecraft last time is that both SATCOMs were three-axis stabilized spacecraft. This means exactly what it sounds like. All three axes of rotation were being controlled by the spacecraft's attitude control system. This was in contrast to the more typical commsats of the day, which were composed of a rotating element and a non-rotating element. In space lingo, these are the spun and despun components. Spinning along one axis can make your attitude control system simpler and more reliable, but limits both the functionality and the design of the spacecraft. There's a reason so many of these geo-bound satellites are big cylinders. And if you look at a photo of SATCOM K2, you'll notice that it's a box instead of a cylinder, which is more typical of satellites these days. SATCOM K2 rode its updated PAMD-2 kickstage to GEO and lived happily ever after. Also on the docket for Flight Day 1 was activating a number of experiments placed in the payload bay. In addition to a whole bunch of getaway special canisters, there was a new type of lower-cost, higher-flexibility payload delivery system, Hitchhiker. Hitchhiker seems to be a fairly similar concept to the getaway specials, but with a little more capability. And rather than being operated mostly for independent research labs, student experiments, and industrial investigations, these were being used by other NASA field centers. In fact, there were two Hitchhiker systems, Hitchhiker G and Hitchhiker M, coming from Goddard and Marshall, respectively. If I understand correctly, the idea here was to have these experiments all prepped and ready to go down at the Kennedy Space Center. As the payload manifests shuffled around, there would eventually be a flight with a little extra payload capacity. It happened all the time, as other payloads were delayed or rescheduled. When that came up, Hitchhiker was right there, ready to go, and could be quickly installed in the payload bay for a free ride to orbit. It was a real win-win. Other NASA field centers had a cheap and easy way to fly stuff on orbit, and the shuttle program didn't have unused capacity going to waste. This flight would fly the first iteration of Hitchhiker G, coming from Goddard, and contained three experiments. One studied the possibility of using capillary motion in spacecraft cooling systems, which was being considered for space station freedom. Another seems to just be some specially coated mirrors that didn't have to do anything but just be in the payload bay. When it got back, investigators would see how the shuttle environment affected their coatings. And along those same lines, the Particle Analysis Cameras experiment would keep an eye out for particles in the payload bay, which could come from a variety of sources. Maybe some material was flaking or outgassing, uh, maybe the orbiter processing facility had some dust contamination, maybe micrometeoroid dust was just lurking around, who knows. Despite all of this data gathering, the crew's only involvement would be to switch Hitchhiker on at the start of the flight and switch it off when it was time to head home. Moving on to flight day two, it was time to bust out the Comet Haley Active Monitoring Program Payload, which of course was shortened to an acronym, CHAMP. CHAMP is about as simple as you can get for a shuttle experiment. All the operator needed to do was take a 35mm camera with a special low-light sensor, cover themselves in this weird little hood setup, and take some photos of Halley's Comet out the window. The hood was to block the light coming from the cabin and allow the use of a more sensitive camera, capturing details about how Halley's Comet was changing with its flyby of the sun. 
These images were to be compared to images taken a few weeks later on the following mission. One thing that caught my eye about this experiment was that one of the principal investigators was Alan Stern, then at the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics. If that name sounds vaguely familiar to you, it's because Alan Stern was also the force behind the New Horizons mission to Pluto. So, between Halley's Comet and Pluto, Stern clearly was a fan of small, icy things from the outer solar system. Unfortunately, when they took Champ out of storage, the battery for the sensor was completely dead. And somehow, there was no backup battery. According to an interview with Hoot Gibson, a perhaps overly optimistic mission control asked the crew to give it a shot anyway, which they dutifully did, taking a series of photos of the comet that would be completely useless thanks to the dead battery. Oh well. It's been a while since we've included a fun little slice of life story on board the shuttle, so let's do a quick one. It's not uncommon for an alarm to sound during the crew's sleep period on the shuttle. Usually these are no big deal, just a minor hiccup or a sensor that was getting confused. With that in mind, Commander Gibson moved his sleeping bag to his seat on the flight deck, so he could quickly deal with any spurious alarms without waking up the whole crew. On the third night of the mission, he instead was greeted by a full-on master alarm indicating a cabin leak. The ultimate source? Someone left the shuttle toilet running, which was dumping a small amount of air overboard. Small, but enough for the computer to notice. That's bad enough on its own, but can you guess what happened in the middle of the fourth night? You got it. I guess this is the space version of making sure to put the toilet lid down. A few days into the flight, the crew got the unwelcome news that the five-day flight would be cut down to four. The reason for this was that Columbia had a time-sensitive mission coming up in just a couple of months, and they were already cutting it tight on the turnaround time. The ground crews could really use the extra day to get started. The crew was bummed, but they need not have fretted. Thanks to the fancy new nose gear steering system, Columbia was to land at the Kennedy Space Center, the first time a shuttle had landed there since the locked brakes incident on STS-51D. But when re-entry day came, the weather at the Kennedy Space Center was so bad that they waved off the landing for another day. The next day, they got all ready to head home again, and the weather was still bad, so their mission was actually extended by a day. On flight day 6, one last time, they got all ready to head home, and the weather at Kennedy was still unacceptable. So after all that, they finally just landed at Edwards. During the uneventful re-entry, the Silt's pod did its thing, characterizing the thermal environment on the top of the orbiter, and it was joined by two other experiments studying the re-entry environment. One was a set of instruments inside the orbiter's nose, which measured the tiny deflections caused by the stressful entry. And another sipped at the tenuous air of the upper atmosphere, analyzing it to learn about its composition. Not a second wasted on these missions. After six days, two hours, three minutes, and 51 seconds, Columbia touched down, another successful mission under its belt. STS-61C was an interesting mission, because on the one hand it didn't really do a ton, but it paradoxically also did a lot. It kicked out one commsat and ran a few minor payload and mid-deck experiments, but it also reintroduced Columbia to the fleet, and added further data to how the orbiter and its immediate environment behaved while on orbit, thanks to Hitchhiker, and during entry, thanks to silts and other experiments. It was a neat little mission, and in light of later events, 
Hoot Gibson called the flight the end of innocence. Next time. Next time, we'll start on our coverage of STS-51L, the final flight of Space Shuttle Challenger. This will be our first multi-episode mission in a while, as we examine what happened on this famously doomed flight, how it happened, and what was done to get the shuttle program back on track. But before we can do all of that, I think we owe it to Challenger to give STS-51L its due, and learn what the mission was supposed to be. STS-51L wasn't always synonymous with tragedy and trauma. It had the potential to be one of the most uplifting flights of the decade. So join us next time as we find out about the remarkable mission that would never come to be. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. Thank you.